So have you ever been line dancing? I love the smattering of laughter already. So many moons ago when I was in my young college years, a, a group of us would occasionally go out to Scuffletown, which is outside of Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, it's a, Scuffletown is, is unique. It's a, it's a clean, respectable, non-alcoholic country dance barn. I mean, it's just one of those places. You can get all the, the boot scooting boogie you can handle out there. So we used to go out there every now and then and, and hang around and, and have a really good time. And uh, one of uh, our friends that went out to that, this sermon was planned before Monday morning, so this wasn't planned, but, but one of our friends is actually here this morning, so I won't totally embarrass him, but my buddy Jeff Lopez and his family are back here in the back sitting with my bride. And so Monday night, Jeff and Angie took their daughter Rachel and some of her friends to a, a place, a barn up near the upstate, and, and it's a place that teaches line dancing. And because we've known each other for years and years, he knows my twisted sense of humor and things that I laugh at. And so he texted me and said, hey, we're up here getting line dancing lessons, and our instructor tonight is named Snake. <laughs> now, I mean, I love that. Everything about that is just fantastic to me. So this is my impression of Jeff if Jeff was doing an impression of one of my favorite coaches when I was a kid, all right? So this is what Monday night sound like. All right, ladies, I got us all signed up. This here is Snake, and Snake is going to learn us how to line dance. So that was Monday night. So I'm laughing, loving this. And so I already had something about line dancing in my notes to begin with. So Jeff just made the, the rest of that. We also had another one of those friends that when he and his fiance got engaged, they had a big pre-wedding party. And their pre-wedding party was a country line dancing theme. Uh, it, was, it was just a great fun night to celebrate their soon-to-be wedding that has now turned out to, to be a fantastic marriage. But what I remember most about that night was that something happened with the DJ. And somehow he either lost or did not show up with his music. All but, but one. He, he did have one. So I now know by heart every word to 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses because I listened to it for two hours and danced to it for two hours. So I, I got that one down. So if you ever are walking through a store and that song comes on the Muzak and you hear someone laugh really loud, it'll be me. That'll be me. Now, before... Anybody goes out and gets on the phone, starts spreading lies that the preacher goes to honky-tonks on Friday night and line dances, all right? All of my line dancing was done with professing Christians in mostly moral environments, okay? Just, just want to be clear about that. And, and just to be sure all the gossip stays clear, all of my ballroom dancing experiments and all of my experiences shag dancing were all similar, all with professing Christians in mostly moral environments. Now, the reason I share that is because, of course, yes, that's right, your, your preacher is, or at least used to be, a dancing machine, right? <laughs> and, it's, and it's not just me. Lucas Shoup is also a dancing machine. So, you know, just, just want to not, not be by myself on that one. So imagine that your family, your closest friends, they throw a huge cookout. 
I mean a, a big old cookout with good wholesome line dancing and a big pit of barbecue and buckets of potato salad and a huge table full of cakes and pies and banana pudding. And they throw this big, huge party, and they invite your extended family. They invite y'all's friends. They invite the whole neighborhood, but they don't invite you. In fact, you don't know anything about it. They have this big, huge party, and you're not invited, and you know nothing about it, but you accidentally find out about it. You find out that there's going to be a party, and you're not invited. How do you think that would make you feel? Closest friends, closest family, you're not invited. I mean, just you. you know, they, they invited the rest of your family. Just you, you know. How would you, how would you feel? One day Jesus was talking to a crowd of people, and he was telling them a story. It, it's an amazing story. This is how amazing the story is. Over the last 2,000 years, that story has been told and retold. It's got prequels and sequels and, and everything else about it. It's, it's an amazing story that, that kind of never loses its punch. And the story is the son goes to his father, and he asks for his inheritance money early. And the father graciously gives him the money, and the, the son takes the money, and he tears off for a far land. And, and boy, he starts throwing out the Benjamins everywhere that he can go. He lived a wild, immoral life, an extravagant life. But it didn't last long because he was so wild and so foolish that in a very short amount of time, he blew through all of his inheritance, all of his money. And he found himself working in a, in a pig farm. And he barely made enough money. In fact, it wasn't enough to keep him fed, so he found himself starving. So he's broke, he's desperate, he's starving. And he realizes there's only one thing he can do. And it's the last thing he thought he would ever do. He knows that he has to go back home. Now, this is a bit of a strange thing because going back home means shame. It means embarrassment. It means rejection. There could be an angry mob that meets him at the city gates and actually stones him to death. That's what it was like back then. See, he didn't just dishonor his father he dishonored his family. He dishonored the whole community. But he was desperate. There was nothing else he could do. So he knew he had to go back home. And before he could even get in the city gates, his father came running to meet him. This is the man he disobeyed. This is the man that he dishonored. This is the man that he disowned with his attitude and with his actions. And yet that man comes running to meet him. He runs to welcome his son home. See, he knew that to see his son coming home was a big deal. He knew his son had, had understood the guaranteed shame, but the potential danger. And so he knew when he saw his son, he knew his son's heart had been broken. He knew his son was, was broken over his sin against God. And he was broken over his sin against his family. This boy, he just, he welcomed him home. I mean, with joy, with celebration. Threw him a, a big cookout with line dancing and, and a, a pit of barbecue, some potato salad, a table full of cakes and pies and banana pudding. Boy, he pulled out all the stops. I mean, it's a great story. I mean, really, you have the wild son thought to be dead 
from drugs or alcohol or, or disease or, or just stupid sin. But, but he comes home. The lost son is, is found. The son that, that they thought was dead, he's alive. I mean, cue the credits, right? Cue the applause from the audience. Great job, Jesus. Best movie ever. But here's the thing. It's not the end. That there's a twist in the story. As Yoda would say, there's another Skywalker. See, there's another child. There's an older son. So what's his deal? Well, Jesus continues the story. Luke 15, verses 25 and 26. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. See, the older son is not just the older son anymore. See, his little brother took all of his money and ran off and disappeared. And so now the older son is the sole heir. He's the sole person responsible for the family home and the family business. And so we see him coming out of the field, and, and I think our first thought would be, oh, you know, he's been out in the field working hard all day, man. He's, he's coming home, and, you know, he's, he smells like a pig, and he's hot, and he's sweaty, and he's covered in filth. But if we look at this time when Jesus was teaching, it is more likely that when he was out in the field, he was the owner-supervisor, okay? That didn't necessarily mean he was sitting under a tree, you know, sipping lemonade. He, he might have been a good supervisor, managed things well, and he may not have been afraid to get his hands dirty. But he hired people to do the heavy lifting. And so he's coming in from the field, and really he's kind of the guy in charge of day-to-day operations for the family home and the family business. And so as he comes in, he gets within earshot of the house, and he hears music. And he's thinking, well, (laughs) I didn't organize that music. And I sure didn't approve any music, so so what's the music about? So he sends one of his workers to go find out what's going on. And the worker comes back, and this is what he tells him. Verse 27. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. All right, let's just all kind of put ourselves in his shoes. Okay, so your little brother, he's a punk, right? He dishonored your father. He dishonored the family. He dishonored you. He dishonored the whole town. He got his money, and then he disappeared to go live the life of a celebrity. He left you back home to run everything by yourself while he went off to have fun. He's embarrassed you. He's caused you extra work. He's probably cost you extra money because you had to hire somebody to to do his part. And then it's one day you're you're coming in from from work and and you hear music and you hear dancing and and then you hear that there's a, a huge barbecue and it's all over your immoral brother. Now come on, let's just be a little honest here. I mean, what would we think? I mean, wouldn't we maybe think... My brother? This is all for my brother? Good grief. You know, we were finally moving on. People had finally stopped asking us about him. Yeah, the way he hurt you, the pain and embarrassment that he brought to your family, your first reaction may not be joy. You might think, and for good reason, what's he want now? 
Is he back here for more money? I wonder what kind of scheme he's laying out to my dad in there. You see, when certain people hurt us in sinful ways, it's really hard for us because we've been hurt to just immediately think they've turned over a new leaf. But see, that's where things get tough because how do you know? How do you know if it's for real? How do you know if somebody's really repented of their sin and they're truly following Jesus? Well, this is what Jesus said, John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that sounds kind of oversimplified, but it's a pretty good start. You see, you can't profess to be a Christian. You can't profess to be a follower of Jesus. And then nothing in your normal daily habits and patterns of life match up with what Jesus teaches. What you say, what you do, how you make decisions, how you treat people, how you spend your money, how you don't spend your money. All of those things must match your profession of faith. Not perfectly, but, but they need to match a little bit. And if they don't match, no matter how many times that we say, well, this is my profession of faith, that profession not matching your life, that math will never work with God. And so what we don't want to do is be foolishly hateful to our souls and just lean on our church membership or just lean on our baptism or just lean on that emotional night at camp. No, if we truly love Jesus, then obey him. If we truly love Jesus, then follow him. I know that sounds super simple, and it is super true, But life is not always super simple, is it? Josh Squires is a counseling pastor here in the Midlands. This is what he writes. There are fewer deceptions that are more confounding than that of false repentance. He goes on. When someone pretends to confess and turn away from sin, but in the depths of his heart means only to appease anger and escape consequences, It leaves in its wake an especially sensitive kind of confusion and pain. Some of us have been there, right? Man, we we cannot do the math. They, They say they're sorry, they say they're repentant, but then nothing changes. And and so we're confused and, and we have to work through that pain. The older brother, he's confused. He comes in from the field, he hears music. And he's like, I didn't order that music, and I'm in charge of things around here. And then he gets this report from one of his servants, and he's confused. Wait a minute. So the music and the dancing, the the barbecue, this is for my rude, hateful, immoral brother? I mean, it's really not hard for us to step into his shoes, right? I mean, this is kind of a, a simple picture. How does he know if this is for real? How does he know if this is a true homecoming or if he's just home for a new play for cash? Before we moved here, uh, our family lived in the upstate of South Carolina. And every morning and almost every evening, I would go out on the side of our house and and participate in, in one of the best parts of my day every day. And that was I would stare across the field about... 15 miles away, and I would see the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of a line of North Carolina mountains. 
It's amazing. Best part of my day. And every sunrise and every sunset, those mountains were there. They were always there. Even if I couldn't see them, they were there. Josh Squires goes on to say this. Genuine repentance tends to be more like mountains on the horizon than a pit on the path. That is, it tends to be easily discernible and not something for which you have to be on the lookout. He goes on. The more you feel like you have to go find repentance, the less likely it is authentic. And he says this. Repentance is a key part of the Christian life. It never feels good. And if it does, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) It's true. But, But there's a lot to that, right? This brother, he's coming in from the field. He hears music on the horizon. He's not sure what to think about it. And then he finds out it's for his brother. And so like most of us, he's walking the rest of the way and he's thinking, what kind of drama am I about to walk into? And there's no reason for us to think the father was not thinking the same thing. I mean, the father very easily could have been put out with his son. I mean, he dishonored him, he disobeyed him, he, he really disowned him, he embarrassed him, ashamed him. It's not crazy to think that the father would have nothing to do with him. It's not crazy that if he did come back home, that the father would be highly skeptical that he'd really turned over a new leaf. But he didn't do that. And that's important. We're going to get back to that in just a moment. First, let's see what happens to the oldest son as he makes his way to the front porch. Verse 28. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. So the father and the older son, they're they're not on the same page here. The father, he runs with joy. The older son, he locks up with anger. Two different approaches. He wouldn't even go in the house. He was going to sit out on the porch in a rocking chair with a scowl on his face, his arms crossed, and he was going to rock as hard as he could until he wore some grooves into the floor. Now, he, he was going to be angry. And you know what? The father could have done the same thing. The father could have locked all the doors to the house, told the son he couldn't get in. The father could have sent the police a message, you ever see that boy of mine at the city gates? You make sure he doesn't come through. You keep him out of here. He could have done that. But he didn't. Why? You see, he knew for his boy to come home, he had owned his sin. He knew for his boy to come home, he he understood, he owned the risk of coming home. He knew that for his boy to come home, he had repented. He knew that. He saw that. But his older brother, he didn't see that. You know why? Because he didn't want to see that. Because he didn't want that. That's not what he wanted at all. How do we know that? Think of it this way. Generally speaking, what's an older brother supposed to do? I mean, older brother, they're, they're supposed to look out for everybody, right? They're supposed to protect everybody. They're supposed to lead. They're supposed to find ways to, to keep everybody together. So if the first reaction of the older brother when the younger brother comes home, was anger? If that's his first reaction? What was he like when he left? 
I mean, really, what was it like when he left it? Did he even try to talk him out of it? Did he even try to say, man, you're being awful to dad. What are you doing? Or maybe, you know what? He, he had already had it, <laughs> his little brother. He was happy to see him go. He didn't care if him leaving broke his father's heart. He was just happy for him to be gone. We don't know what he did before he left. Here's what we do know, though. If we look at historic culture, we find that the people at that party, they wouldn't have really thought the party was about the younger son. No, they would have thought that party was much more a display of the love and the honor and the grace and the forgiveness of the Father. They would have seen this party as this unbelievable picture of how loving and forgiving and gracious the Father was. And so really, this party was much more about the family's name, and it was a good family name. And so at the very least, the the older brother, he should have gone in just because the, the party was for his family. It was a good thing. He should have gone in just for selfish reasons, right? I mean, he's been working all day, he's hot, he's tired. He could probably use something cool to drink, something good to eat, put his feet up a little bit. No, uh-uh, he ain't going in. He's going to sit outside on the porch, and he's going to pout in his anger. And he's not just having a pity party of one. No, he's doing much more than that. And staying outside on the porch and not going in the house, what he's doing is he's being tremendously, extravagantly rude and mean and dishonoring to his father. And everybody would know it. You see, sometimes we read the story and and we kind of quickly think, oh, well, the older son, he stayed home. He, He took care of the family business. He took care of the house. He honored his father. But he didn't. And how do we know? Well, we we know from right here. You see, to refuse to to go into a party that's honoring your family, especially if you're the oldest son, to stay on the porch and pout instead of going in, well, that's kind of like demanding your inheritance early from your father and then going far away and blowing it all on immoral life. See, it's two sons with the same story, just different details. And dishonoring your father by running away or dishonoring your father by staying at home, neither one of them are fluke decisions. To not go into the party or to run away, they're not fluke decisions. They're things that were already going on in your mind and your heart. John MacArthur says this, For years that older rebel had managed to conceal his true feelings of resentment toward his father and brother. All along, though, he had been wicked like his brother, only inwardly, not outwardly. He continues, but this event exposed his real attitude. In a burst of public display from long-cultivated private hatred, he became angry and was not willing to go in to celebrate with the others. And then he says this, he could not rejoice over the recovery of his lost brother because he had no love for his father. No love for his father. You know, fathers and sons, are, they're different. They are, you know. But, but I would like to think that I know how to honor the things my dad loves, you know. 
I mean, there's certain restaurants, they may not be my favorite, but he loves them, so I'll go eat there, you know. There's, there's lots of things in his life that, that I hope I honor just because I love him. And so if the older son had truly loved his father, he wouldn't be on the porch having a tantrum. Because that's basically doing exactly what his little brother did. Now, he would have gone in and lovingly honored his father. See, this is where the plot of the story kind of thickens. You have one son that dishonored his father by going to a faraway land. And then you have another son that dishonored just by going to the far side of the house. They both dishonored their father. Some people have said this story should not have been included in the prodigal story. They say that it it doesn't really fit. Everything should have stopped right after the younger son came home. They say this was probably added by some people who are transcribing the Bible later. But here's the problem with that. Jesus would have totally said this. (laughs) He would have. This, This is classic Jesus. See, he's talking to a crowd of people, and in that crowd, there's some older brothers and there's some younger brothers. There's some people in that crowd, they were kind of known as the people that always do the rebellious, immoral thing. I mean, right now, it doesn't take us long. We know that person, right? We can remember them from high school. Maybe they're in our family. I don't know. Maybe they're you. I don't know. But we know that person. They, they seem to consistently always do the rebellious, immoral thing. And then in that crowd, there were people that pretty consistently always did the responsible moral thing. And here's what both of those kind of people have in common. Apostle Paul put it this way to the church at Rome. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. See, we tend to think that if we're not off in a far country being immoral, that God's going to give us a pass. You know, that he's going to be okay with us because we're being a good citizen. See, we're tempted to think that that God is kind of like the company banker of our religion, you know, that that we go out and and do some things and and God's going to take care of us, that we're going to get a, a good day's wages from the banker for a day of good deeds. But that's not how the economy of God works. In fact, Jesus died on the cross so that you would not get paid. Jesus died so that you would not get the wages that you actually deserve. That's another picture. See, on the horizon outside of Jerusalem one Friday, Jesus substituted himself. And he substituted himself in such a way that your wages would change so that you would be paid different, so that instead of getting paid with death, you would be paid with life. Yeah, this story is it's not an accident. It wasn't an add-on. In fact, it may be the most important part of the story. Why? Well, because it seems to be a, a text message direct from Jesus to the churchgoer. 
And it's a text message to the churchgoer with some questions. Why are you not like your father? Why don't you love like he loves? Why don't you forgive like he forgives? Why don't you celebrate like he celebrates? Are you truly excited when people truly get saved? Are you truly excited when when someone legitimately comes in to the church as a new member? Or are you willing to accept them as long as they fall in line with the way things have always been done? Listen, you don't want to be the older son in this story. That's exactly why Jesus says it. You don't want to be the older son. But I would say in a sense, you don't want to be the younger son either in some ways. But here's what you do want. Boy, you want the father. You want the Father. You want the one who chases and runs and pursues. You want the one who rescues and saves and redeems. You want the one who forgives and protects. You want the one that loves. Yeah, we want the Father. John Owen lived in the 1600s. He said this about the love of God. So much as we see of the love of God, so much we shall delight in Him. Every other discovery of God without this will but make the soul fly from Him. Let me update that language a little bit. If you learn a lot of fantastic things about God, but you don't learn His love, you will sound like a metal spoon banging a pot. The gospel won't be heard because you'll just be shouting things about God. But there's another side to that too. If you hear these deep truths about God and you feel uncomfortable with them, you don't like them, that's not what my God would do. That's not how my God would handle things. I don't like that word, so I avoid that word when I'm reading Ephesians or Colossians or Galatians. Or Romans. That's from a mouth and a heart that's never found the love of God. You see, the love of God doesn't make us run from Him. But when we miss the love of God, man, our souls will fly. Because we don't want it. John Owen goes on to say this. But if the heart be once much taken up with this eminency of the Father's love, It cannot choose but be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto him. That's fun. Man, if you you catch just a glimpse of the love of God, boy, it'll conquer you in all the ways you want to be conquered. It'll overpower you in in all the ways you'll want to be overpowered. And in your moment of, of greatest pain, when your prodigal breaks your heart, the love of God will be real. Because that's what his love does. It conquers and overpowers. It endears us to God in a way that makes us not want to run. And then Owen says this. Sit down a little at the fountain and you will quickly have a further discovery of the sweetness of the streams. You who have run from him will not be able after a while to keep at a distance 
for a moment. That's, that's what the love of God does. The love of God is so great, so grand, so relentless, so wonderful that we can't stay angry on the porch. I mean, we might. We might sit out there and keep pouting. We'll sit out with our arms crossed and we'll pout at our spouse or we'll pout at our parents or we'll pout at our kids. We'll pout at the pastor. We'll pout at the church. We'll pout at the president. We'll pout at the politicians. We'll pout at the doctor. We'll pout at anybody. But here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel says, oh, Dow, sit at the fountain. Just, just sit. Just sit by the stream a moment more. Feel the awesome, relentless love of God. The reckless love of God, as the song says. And when you feel that, man, you can't stay on the porch. You just can't. So by the grace of God, let's stay off the angry porch. Let's sit by the fountain. Let's delight ourselves in the love of the Father. Let's delight ourselves in the love of God. And let's not run from Him. Let's run to Him because He has run to us.